Well, again, good morning and welcome to Grumlaw. So glad that all of you decided to show up here today, decided to spend some of probably what is already a really busy week here with us. I, I promise that I, I'm not just saying that because it sounds nice. Uh, we don't take that for granted that, that so many of you decide to walk through our doors each and every week, particularly if this is your first time with us, because I, I totally understand firsthand how stepping into a new place, it, it can feel scary. It can feel a little bit intimidating. And so we're so glad that you kind of overcame those fears and again, decided to make Grumlaw a part of your week. As has already been alluded to, today we're starting this new series called Relational Vampires. Now, I'm just going to kind of call attention to something here, but before some of you would perhaps get bent out of shape and write a comment on like a Connect card or, or, or send an email saying you're annoyed by this, uh, we are not doing this series because we have like an obsession with Halloween, right? Like it's like we just love all things Halloween. I can perfectly picture opening up my inbox tomorrow morning and having an email from someone saying, I can't believe you would talk about Halloween. Don't you know that that's like basically Satan's Christmas? In fact, I grew up in a, uh, in a pretty traditional and a pretty conservative church, and uh, this time of year, uh, we wouldn't have Halloween parties. We would instead have harvest parties. Anybody ever been a part of a harvest party? Uh, I don't want you all to miss out that I haven't been a part of harvest parties, so here's what a harvest party is like. You, you go to the church dressed up in a costume, and then all around the building, uh, there are people that, that are handing you candy. Most of them you do not know. They're strangers. If you say the words trick or treat. And then after you hit up all these people for some free candy, then you like go into one common area, maybe a gym, maybe the lobby. And then everybody's like eating cinnamon and sugar donuts. They're drinking apple cider. And then while you're all well and hopped up on sugar, you get to go home. What does that sound like to you? Sounds an awful lot like Halloween, but this is what some very, you know, Christian mothers figured out if you call it a harvest party rather than a Halloween party, not as many people get bent out of shape. I also will promise to all of you that we are not going to subject you to four straight weeks of Halloween-related games, songs, and messages. That's not something that I would particularly want to be a part of. I wouldn't expect that that is something you would want to be a part of either. Uh, but in all seriousness, the reason that we're doing this series and the reason that I think that you're gonna find this series to be incredibly applicable to your life, no matter where you find yourself in this whole faith journey, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're married, whether you are single, whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, is because every single one of us, Christian or not, we all have people that are a part of our lives that can be a little bit, let's put it politely, challenging, right? People that can be a little bit draining. And so over these next four weeks, we're gonna be talking about how. How do we love the people that suck the life out of us? Now, now notice the wording of this even. Not, not how do we, you know, just get along with, not, not how do we put up with, but, but genuinely, how do we love the people that can be a little bit more draining in our lives? And, and the reason that this series is so, so important is because whether you believe this yet or not, and I know that some of you are certainly not at this point, uh, but God loves you. God loves you a lot, in fact, so much so that he sent his one and his only son to die for you. And for the people that are in this room that would identify as Jesus followers in particular, we are called to reciprocate that love, that love that was demonstrated to us through God giving his son on a cross. We are called to reciprocate that love to the world around us. We're called to reciprocate that love to the people around us up to and even including the people that are in our lives that can be a little bit more draining, the people that can be a little bit more challenging. Now, 
I know that this series applies to every single one of us, Christian or not, is because no sooner did I begin to describe this series that every single one of you had one, two, three, maybe four different people that immediately came to your mind. In fact, I hadn't even finished reading this question and that person was like staring at you right in the face like, hello, here I am. And you're like, that's that difficult person. Some of those people, in fact, are sitting next to you right now. Don't look at them. This is supposed to be a safe place. This is church. But just as a fictional vampire sucks the blood out of our lives, A relational vampire sucks the life, the emotion, the energy right out from us. And so over these next four weeks, just in case you're curious, I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag here. We're going to be talking this week about how do we love controlling people. The next week we're going to be on to critical people, then needy people, and then we're going to wrap this whole thing up with my personal favorite, how do we love hypocritical people. And chances are, every single one of us, you have at least one, maybe two people in your life that fall into each of those categories. Now, to get us kind of on the, the, the right you know, frame of mind here this morning, by a show of hands, how many of you know somebody that could be, and I want you to participate here, that could be appropriately labeled as a control freak? Anyone have a control freak in their life? Uh, for some of you, the hand got pulled down by the person next to you. That's the control freak in your life. Now, when it comes to a controlling person, when that controlling person, as we have all experienced, does not get what they want, it, it often turns into pouting and it turns into stomping and whining and complaining and threatening and eventually silent treating and then everybody gets their eggshelling on, right? Because you have to walk around on eggshells because that controlling person's life has just been disrupted. Sound familiar? Again, don't point at people. We're gonna need to put blinders on here for the rest of the series. So how do we love those people well? Seriously, how do we love a controlling person well? Which is really what is at the heart of this entire series. Do we just write these people off? Do do, do we send them a a letter that says, please don't ever talk to me again? Do do, do we throw our hands up into the air and just say, well, I I guess that's just how that person's always going to be, and and you just basically have to deal with it? How do we go about loving, controlling people? Before we answer that question, I think it would be really, really wise for us to kind of take a look at and examine the two primary weapons uh, that are at the disposal of a controlling person, the, the two weapons that a controlling person will frequently use. The first one is, is this, it's threats. Controlling people will, will very commonly use threats, and when it comes to threats, they'll typically manifest themselves in one or two ways. They'll, they'll say it, sometimes they'll just flat out say the threat, and, and other times, and I believe to be more commonly, they will imply it. Uh, Implying those threats, I think, again, it comes so much more common because even for the most controlling of people, like a direct stated threat, it feels so like, ugh. I mean, it just feels so wrong. It feels so heavy. So implying it comes so much easier. But whether it's outright stated or whether it's something that someone is simply implying, how it is felt, how how it is received is all the same. If you don't fill in the blank, you're going to pay. If you don't do what I'm asking you to do, if you don't fall in line, if you do not decide to follow my rules, you are going to pay. If you don't give me what I want sexually in this relationship, I am going to break up with you. If you don't cut these corners and you don't make this deal happen, you are not going to be considered for this promotion. If you tell anyone, I'm telling you, if you whisper this to anyone, I will leave you. If we don't hang out this week, Like in the very, very near future, don't you ever bother texting, don't you ever bother calling me again. What's so scary about this is that there are certain controlling people that have become so incredibly proficient at this that they don't even have to use their words. They can just give that intimidating look and the message is sent. I'm telling you what's scary about this is I experience this on a regular basis from this stage. 
Believe it or not, I actually pay attention to, to your guys' body behavior and stuff. And literally just a couple of weeks ago, this happened where I, I used it as an example. I was talking about, you know, sleeping with your boyfriend, sleeping with your girlfriend before marriage. And that this one couple, boyfriend and girlfriend, were really locked in. And, and the girlfriend gave this look up to the boyfriend as to kind of say like, hey, maybe we ought to talk about this. Maybe we ought to rethink how we're going about in, in, in this relationship. And, and the boyfriend sensing that the girlfriend was looking at him and sensing that, okay, hey, I want to have that conversation. He, he gave her this, this sharp, this, this cutting, this demeaning, this, this you better not dare ever bring that up. We are not having that conversation type look. And immediately, as soon as they made eye contact, it was eyes to the ground. The message was sent. Controlling people will use threats, and secondly, they're going to use guilt. Now, ironically, or maybe not ironically, just like threats, sometimes the guilt is just stated, and other times it is simply implied. But similar to those threats, whether it's stated, whether it's implied, the message that is being received is all the same. After all I've done for you, come on, after all I've done for you, you won't do this one thing for me. I thought we were supposed to be friends. You're not even willing to do just this one tiny thing for me. I bought you all of these things, all of these gifts. I take you out on dates multiple times a week. I always pay and you still won't sleep with me. You call yourself a Christian? Some kind of a Christian you are. I raised you. You don't have the decency to come over and hang out with me for a couple of hours every week. You never call me. After all I've done for you, who? I can tell by the looks on some faces, some of you are like, yeah, that, that is ringing way too close to home. So, so seriously, how do we love controlling people? People that are intentionally, other times they're unintentionally trying to control and trying to manipulate us. Now, sensing right now that this can be a somewhat emotional topic for a good number of people in this room, uh, before we go any farther right now, I'd like to pray for all of you, pray for me as I give this message. Allow me to do that now. God, we thank you. Uh, that you are a God that, that is for us, not against us. We thank you that you're a God that's not trying to control us, but you're a God that's going, my goodness, if you just follow my ways, it, it will be better for you. It will lead to freedom. It will lead to, lead to purpose. And so, God, uh, I just ask that every person in this room uh, truly would be open, open to whatever it is that you want to say to them today, that, that we'd lay our guards down. Uh, if we have hard hearts, that you would soften those. And, and, and again, we'd just be receptive to whatever it is that you want to share with us today. In your name we pray, amen. So what we're gonna do now is we are gonna direct our attention to a particular interaction, a conversation that we see between Jesus, as in the son of God, Jesus, and one of his closest friends during his time here on earth, a guy by the name of Peter. Uh, we find this interaction recorded for us in the book of Matthew. For those of you that do not know, Matthew is the very first book of the second kind of half of the Bible called the New Testament. Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, and John, those four books record for us Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And by the way, if you've never really picked up and read a Bible for yourself, uh, Matthew would be a really, really great place for you to start. We have free Bibles in the back every single week. You shouldn't just take my word for it on this stuff. Read this stuff, get into this, read this for yourself. Even those of you that aren't like, man, I don't really know if I believe yet. At least in those four books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you get to read about the history and the life of Jesus. Again, Matthew would be a really, really good place for you to start. But in the 16th chapter of this book, we see an occasion where Peter, unintentionally, mind you, tries to control Jesus. Now, 
As a bit of a side note here, um, probably just generally speaking, not a good idea to try to control the, the Son of God. That probably won't work out very well for you. Uh, but I want to give you a little bit of context into the situation that we're about to step into here between Peter and Jesus. Jesus, during his relatively short amount of time on earth, in fact, if you've ever been skeptical of Christianity, this is one of those details that, that you really got to lean into, that, that you really would be wise to pay attention to. Jesus' earthly ministry only lasted for about three years. He only spent about three years building his brand, spreading what we would now refer to as Christianity, but yet here we are thousands of years later, and there are a whole mess of people gathered right now all over the country, all over the world that are still talking about him. Again, it's one of those kind of juicy details you'd be wise to pay attention to, but nonetheless, during that three-year ministry, he had 12 guys in particular that he really invested in, that he spent a ton of time with. We often refer to those guys as the 12 disciples. They were Jesus's 12 best friends, and very frequently, and again, I would challenge you to read this stuff for yourself. Jesus would pause and seemingly out of nowhere, he would just like give them this warning and it never seemed to click for him. But he'd be like, hey, listen, I know that things right now are going pretty well, but eventually things aren't actually gonna go very well. Eventually, everybody's gonna turn on me. The religious leaders, if you haven't gathered yet, they're not like my biggest fans and they're gonna get like really nasty and eventually I'm gonna be killed. They're actually going to crucify me. But don't let that freak you out too much because three days later, I'm actually going to rise from the grave. But no matter how many times Jesus seemed to communicate this to his disciples, they just didn't get it. And I don't think we can actually really blame them because, well, one, there wasn't like this long list of people that had successfully predicted their own death and predicted their own resurrection and then like actually pulled it off. In fact, there's only been one guy in the history of the world that has accomplished that, and his name is Jesus, so it wasn't like that's something that they had seen a lot of. It's also really important to understand that at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was incredibly popular. Him and his disciples were like the hottest thing on earth. They could go into any town, any place, and people would swarm them. People latched onto Jesus' words like they were like, oh my goodness, they loved listening to Jesus. He was performing all these miracles. He's walking on water. He's healing people. Everybody seemed to love Jesus. And so the idea that in such a short amount of time, things were going to go so poorly for him, it almost seemed unthinkable. And then last, most of these disciples, most of Jesus' best friends, they were Jewish men, which meant that they grew up in Jewish homes. They were Jewish boys. And the narrative of Jesus that they had grown up with, the narrative of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the role that Jesus was fulfilling right in front of their eyes, the version that they had heard was that the Messiah was going to be like this great war hero. He was going to be this commander of the army that would lead the Jewish people against the entire world and eventually they would be that dominant religion, that they would be the dominant people over the entire world. But Jesus, he wasn't really doing that. Jesus was more of like the humble servant type, so again, it seemed implausible. And we have these handful of occasions throughout scripture as Jesus would continue to bring this up again and again, hey, eventually I'm going to be killed, but don't worry, I'm going to rise from the grave, that his disciples, his best friends became increasingly annoyed. They, they were frustrated that Jesus would continue to talk about this. It, it would be like, let's say you have a 16-year-old. Some of you probably do have a 16-year-old. You have a 16-year-old daughter. You have a 16-year-old son. They get their driver's license. And about a week into their driving, you know, they, they started coming home from school. They started coming home from wherever they were coming home from. And, and they looked at you. And they just sit on the you know, kitchen table. And they look at you and be like, Mom, Dad, I, this is weird, but I think I'm going to die in a fiery car accident. 
I mean, the first time that your kid says that, you're like, wait, what? Like, explain, you have a conversation around it. The next day they bring it up again, you're like, okay, wait, what? And you're sympathetic, you have a conversation. By like the 10th day, you're like, enough! Stop talking about it! Like, you are somehow going to will this thing, like, into existence. You're not going to get a car accident. In fact, if you keep talking about it, we're just going to take the keys from you. And this is exactly what's going on with Peter. He's sick of Jesus talking all doom and gloom. He's sick of Jesus that that he keeps bringing this idea up that eventually he's going to be killed. In fact, he's almost offended that Jesus would think so lowly of him as a friend that Peter would somehow allow this to happen. And so, after Jesus talks about this for like the 20th time, Peter pulls Jesus to the side to give him a talking to. Peter pulling Jesus to the side. Peter wants to take control of the situation that Jesus has just so clearly lost control of. And this is what he says. Peter took him aside and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never, ever, ever happen to you. Now, I don't know if you guys have these experiences as, as you read scripture, and again, read this stuff for yourself, but this is one of those stories that every single time I read it, I start laughing out loud. Because the situation is just so absurd. Like, you just picture Peter there, like, scolding Jesus, scolding and reprimanding the Son of God. I have to think that it took everything in Jesus in this moment to keep a straight face, to not start grinning, to not start smirking. He's doing that whole internal dialogue of, like, you can't laugh right now, you can't smile right now. He's being serious. If you laugh, he's going to be so offended. Now, by the way, this is something that controlling people, what we're seeing right here, love to do. They love to isolate. They, they love to get it where it's just you and them, where their opinion, where their facts can be heard. They want to get you away from those other voices that you know, could possibly pollute the situation that they know that they are so right about. But Peter's serious. Peter's taking control. He's looking at Jesus going, Jesus, you got to stop talking about this. Did, did you realize, Jesus, how this makes me feel? Did you realize how this makes James feel and John feel? You, you really think that we're going to let you get arrested? We're not going to let that happen. Jesus, there ain't no way that we're going to allow you to be killed. He's taking control. He wants to take control of this situation that he thinks Jesus has lost control of. Uh, the house that my wife and I lived in uh, prior to this, we were living in Howell before we came up here to, to start this church, and it was a little bit off the, uh, the beaten path. And uh, when we first moved in there, my wife had kind of always lived in subdivisions, and so like, there was this element of like, okay, is like, everything okay? Like Somebody could easily break into our home, and it didn't help that when we moved into our home, there was a security system that was already installed. And uh, my wife would bring this up like, at least like, a couple of times a week. She'd look at me and be like, Shay, can can we get that security system activated? And at first, and it was like conversation. I was like, no, honey, we, we, don't, need, we don't need a security system. Like everything's gonna be fine. Like this is a safe area to live. And then she kept bringing it up again and again and again. And I'm not kidding. I, I kind of started to get offended. I'm like, honey, we ain't getting a security system. Why do we need ADT when you got the S-H-E-A? Like, let's go. And I got some other buddies named Weatherby and Benelli and Winchester. Like, we don't need no security system. Stop bringing this up. You are offending me by saying this. That's what Peter's saying to Jesus. Jesus allows Peter to speak for a moment, but now it's Jesus' turn. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. Whew. I mean, this is his friend. Get away from me, Satan. Now, as a general rule of thumb here, as a bit of a side note, uh, when it comes to controlling people in your life, I would not recommend this. Um, I don't think your mother-in-law will be terribly receptive to get away from me, Satan. I'm just assuming that that was reserved for Jesus, only he could pull that off. If you think you can, let me know how that goes. Uh, You are a dangerous trap to me, Peter. 
You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now Peter, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt, probably out of sheer ignorance, was trying to stand in the way of the will of God. And, and as you might guess, Jesus certainly wasn't having it. He, he's looking at Peter going, Peter, listen, I, I know that this doesn't sound like what is best for you. I know that this doesn't sound like what is best for the other disciples. I know that this certainly looks terrible on me, but this is how it's going down. And for you to continue to stand in the way places you in a strikingly similar position to Satan. Which, come on, isn't that exactly the role that Satan plays in all of our lives? A obstructor to the will of God? Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. To which, come on, they're human beings. To which the other disciples had to have been thinking in this moment, thanks a lot, Peter. <laughs> like, listen, like we were all thinking the same thing, but we weren't stupid enough to open up our mouths and try to control Jesus. Now you just got us all in trouble. But from this relatively short conversation here that we see with Peter, I, I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about three practical solutions for, for how we ought to love controlling people. From this, this conversation, three, three things to know. Number one, know what you are called to do. Know what you are called to do. Jesus knew beyond the shadow of any doubt why he was sent to earth. And in fact, he would talk about it all the time. Jesus came to this world to save us. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for you. Because see, when we sinned, we fractured that relationship between God. And now there's this enormous chasm that sits between ourselves, our sin, and God. And Jesus gave himself as that ransom so that we could simply believe in him. And we'd have the opportunity to get that right standing back. And so when a person like Peter comes along and he tries to move Jesus away from this very clear calling, from this very clear vision, Jesus is unwavering. He, he does not buy into what Peter is selling for a second. So, so, so what does that mean for you? For, for you to appropriately love a controlling person, you must have your calling clearly defined. So when those controlling people come along and they try to push you off of that path, you're unwavering because you know unequivocally, unequivocally what you are called to do. Now, I recognize that, that this in and of itself can kind of be a daunting task for some people. The idea like, what is my calling? Because, you know, kind of this attitude that, that prevails in our society of like, you can do anything. You can change the world. And so we, we hear the word calling and we immediately think that, man, we got to find the cure for cancer. We got to sell everything and move to Uganda and, you know, look after orphans and look after widows. But I would argue that you would be wise to think a lot smaller and, and think about the people that are closest to you. If you're married husbands... One of your callings is probably to love your wife. If you have kids, it's probably to lead your children. Your calling might be right now at this present time to share Jesus with your coworkers. Your calling right now at this present stage of your life might be to graduate from college with as little debt as possible and find a job in a field that you are passionate about. Here's the calling that I know that God has placed on my life. Love Jesus, serve my beautiful wife, Andrea, lead my children, and pastor this church. In that order, by the way. And guess what? I, I love this church. I love this church so much. I, I get giddy when I jump off the pillow at 5.30 a.m. on Sundays. I cannot wait to get here. I love what I get to do even Monday through Friday. But make no mistake about it, I love Jesus, my wife, and my kids a whole lot more. 
And he, here's what's really so great about this. But by knowing that this is my calling, it protects me from controlling people that consciously or unconsciously try to pull me away from that calling. Let, let, let me give you an example of this, real life. Uh, this past summer, um, I got invited to be a part of a softball team from one of our supporting churches. They needed one more player. I don't know who suggested it, but they're like, hey, you should play in this, this softball team. This one guy calls me, and I'm like, eh, let me think about it. And then unbeknownst to me, I got lumped into like a, a thread with like 20 other grown men that got like, just like, if you've ever been a part of one of those text threads, you wake up and you're like, how do I have 100 missed messages? Only to find out that somebody like made a trade in their fantasy football team and it ruined a lot of people's worlds. But anyway, they're trying to get me to be a part of the softball team. And the texts are kind of getting like, they're not like nasty, but they're kind of like, oh man, is that guy serious? And they're trying to talk me into it. And I'm kind of explaining like, eh, I don't know, maybe we'll see. And eventually I said, no. I said, I, I don't think that I'm supposed to do this because I know that part of my calling is to lead my children. And, and right now, as my job presently sits, I, I don't get to put my kids to bed at least three nights a week. So, so that would mean that if I said yes to that softball league, that would have been a fourth night each week that I wasn't going to be able to be with my kids when they went to bed. And so if I'm going to lead my children, I think I have to be pretty present in their lives. I get asked to speak at other churches fairly often. I get asked to speak at retreats and conferences on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I almost always say no. It's not because I don't want to do it. It's because, again, my calling is to pastor this church. And I think if I'm going to appropriately lead this church and pastor this church well, I think I have to be present here on a consistent basis. If I'm telling you one of the values around here is to consistently show up here, to buck those trends that you only need to go to church about once a month, I think I ought to be leading by example. I can confidently stand up against these threats to my calling only because my calling is clearly defined. Now, by the way, it's worth noting, those things aren't wrong, right? It's not sin to play softball with your buddies. I don't think it would be a sin for me to say yes as to speaking at other churches on a more regular basis. But are they my best yes? Are they the wisest thing for my life? I'm able to stand against those things again because they are an infringement on my calling. Now, now a couple quick words of warning here and then we gotta move on. A, a lot of you that, that are sitting here today, you could be appropriately labeled as a people pleaser, right? And, and saying no to a controlling person is like, ugh, it, it is like the hardest thing for you to muster up. But, but all you people pleasers, you need to listen to this. People pleasing is a form of idolatry. And I know that that sounds harsh and that sounds like, where did that come from? But, but here's why. Because you're placing people's opinions of you ahead of God's calling for you. And I'm telling you, once you start to recognize people-pleasing for, for what it actually is, idolatry, it becomes a whole lot easier to stand up against it, as innocent or, or as significant as it might seem. People-pleasers, as you think about these controlling people, I challenge you to answer this question. What does every controlling person have in common? Come on, I'm, I'm telling you, you know it. Someone who allows it. It takes two to tango. That that person would never be labeled, would never be labeled as a control freak if there were not people that were sitting idly by allowing it to happen, allowing it to go down. Undoubtedly, make no mistake about it, that controlling person has a problem, but so do you if you continue to allow it to occur. So you must know what you are called to do. Define your calling. If you have not defined your calling, how can you possibly defend against it? 
Number two, know. Know when someone is trying to control you. See, see, we all have people that are the obvious control freaks in our lives. In fact, I know that a lot of you are on the same page with that because a lot of you married people, when we started talking about this, you looked at each other and smiled and you guys had the exact same person in mind. Like we know when it's really, really, really obvious. It's easy to see in those scenarios. But what about when it's a little bit more subtle? One of the things that I really appreciate about this interaction between Peter and Jesus is it's not as if like Peter was the worst guy on the planet, right? I think most of us would agree that, that Peter was, was a pretty decent human being. In fact, we owe a lot to the rise of the early Christian church to guys like Peter. I'm certainly thankful for Peter. He wasn't this horrible, wretched human being, but he was still trying to infringe on the will of God. It was a subtle attack on the calling. If you give, sorry, he was trying to control what he did not understand. See, so often, what, what drives these controlling people is a lack of understanding. So, so they're desperately trying to corral you into, into a position that just makes more sense to them. Be alert. Be, be wise to the people that are in your life, that have influence in your life. Use discernment. Start to recognize those more subtle attacks on your calling. And then number three, know. Know when to draw the line. Know when to draw those hard lines in the sand. And, and believe it or not, this is actually the loving thing to do. To, to continue to allow that person to control their way through their life and through your life is not loving them well. Jesus do, drew a strikingly hard line in the sand. When, when he looked at Peter and he said, get away from me, Satan. He, he wanted to make sure that Peter and the other disciples heard the message loud and clear. Can you imagine with me if Jesus didn't have a clearly defined calling? If Jesus was consumed with what other people thought about him? If he was consumed with Peter's opinion of him? And in this moment, you know, Peter's calling him to the side and he's scolding him. And Jesus sat there with his head down. And he's like, you know, Peter, I mean, you bring up some good points. I guess I didn't really think about it that way. I mean, God told me that I was supposed to come and save the sins of the entire world. But I want you to be happy too, so... Entire human race, Peter, okay, Peter, what you got? If you give control to a person, people are directing you, not God. You're caring more for the things of man rather than the things of God. And here's why that's important, because Christian or not, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Because I should have to spend zero time convincing all of you that people are emotional. They change. They screw it up all the time. They make the wrong decisions all the time. They make rash decisions. They are impatient. They are prone to outbursts. People are prone to anger. I mean, Christian or not, just think about this practically. Like, do, do you really want to go through life being controlled by fickle, emotional people? Or, or would you rather give control over to God, who, who does not change, who is constant, who's unwavering, who's faithful, who is so patient that we can't even wrap our heads around that type of patient. Make no mistake about it that the relationships you have are a combination of what you've created and what you have accepted. Start drawing those lines in the sand. Be bold. Take control. It will be better for you. It'll be certainly better for the people that are closest to you. And undoubtedly, it'll actually be better for the controlling person as well. One of the things that um, 
I didn't necessarily expect when, when I stepped into this role as a pastor is like, we, we have a lot of like young couples in this church, you know, couples that are pretty recently married. And, and what are the more common emails, phone calls, pull me aside after I preach type conversations that I have or, or from people like, you know, and the, the, they'll pull me aside and they'll say, hey, you know, there's just something kind of personal that we need to have a conversation about. And it's like, it, it's really taken a toll on our marriage. Like, would you be willing to sit down with us, you know, sometime this week and say yes. And um, it, it's been kind of crazy the number of times that this has come up where I'll sit there and, and almost immediately uh, the wife starts crying and then through the tears she starts to talk about how her mother-in-law, the husband's mom, has been so demeaning, has been so cutting, has been so conniving and controlling in the relationship and they're finally looking at it because the guy's finally seen it as well. Initially it started out as like, no, it doesn't really exist. No, keep your eyes out for it and he sees it now too and they're going, what, what do we do? Like, like, how are we supposed to handle this situation? And every single time I, I look at the husband and I give the exact same advice, you need to start drawing lines in the sand. When you said I do to this woman, she became the most important person in your life, not mommy. And you need to start drawing those hard lines. Like the minute that mom starts giving those, those, those looks, the minute that she, she throws in those jabs, those comments, and she knows exactly what she is doing, you need to have the confidence, no matter how mild-mannered you are, to look your mom right in the eye and say, one more comment like that, and we are out of here. We will leave this restaurant. I will kick you out of my home. We will leave your home. Now, the great news is, is I've gotten an opportunity to follow up with these couples and say, how'd it go? And they're like, it was hard. It was brutal but man, she really whipped into shape. And I'm like, yeah, because as much as she loves the control, she loves you more. And she's not willing to sacrifice that relationship just so that she can have a little bit more control. It's difficult, but it's no more difficult than continuing to live with a dysfunctional relationship. Now, now last thing, and and I intentionally put this right here at the end of the message. I I, want to challenge you uh, to be introspective right now. I want you to be honest with yourself. And so you don't have to admit this to anybody else, but I challenge you to be at least honest with you. It's so easy in messages like this to look around the room and be like, look at all these control freaks. And it's so easy to have all these different names and all these different faces running through your mind. But come on, think about you. Aren't you deep down? Come on, aren't you a control freak? Think about it. God loves you so, so much. God has an incredible plan for your life. And he went to enormous lengths to make sure that you heard that loud and clear when he sent his son to die on a cross for you. But despite that knowledge, and none of you can claim ignorance now because I just told you, despite that knowledge, have you truly given God control of everything everything, I mean everything in your life? Probably not. So so what would you call a person who knows, God, you have my best interests in mind. You gave your son to me. I I know if I started leaning in this direction, I know if I started listening to your nudges, I started listening to your promptings. I know if I started following these commands that my life would in fact be better. It would be better for me. It would be better for the people around me. I mean, I know all that. Thank you for sending your son. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of it. I'm just going to give you some of that control. What would you call that kind of a person? I would call him a control freak. 
You are a control freak. I am a control freak. It's kind of therapeutic, right? We are control freaks. And here's what Jesus would say to us control freaks. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must, let's read this highlighted part together, give up your own way. You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. I'll help to translate that. Give up your own way, give up the control. You know what I've figured out in my life? And in fact, all of you have actually figured this out as well. Your lives have demonstrated this to you, but again, just maybe you haven't admitted it. Um, but I, I am not a very good God. I have tried to play God in my life, and I have discovered, in fact, what you have discovered, I am horrible at it. I am so bad at playing God because for all those reasons, I'm driven by my emotions. I make rash decisions. When I don't get sleep, I'm like a different human being. I'm so bad at it, and so are you. But when you choose to truly follow Jesus, you are handing him the control, not just of some of the things, not just of part of your life, but everything. So before we are quick to condemn and judge all the control freaks that we see all around us, remember, you are or you were one too. So approach it with love. Approach it with grace. Because that is precisely, precisely what Jesus did with you.